So, hey, team, we might pray now. We're going to jump back into Luke. We've had a couple of weeks off with uh, Father's Day and Chris Barnden coming and preaching with us. But we're jumping back into Luke again today. I'm going to crack into that passage that um, Jeanette has just read to us. So let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for uh, our opportunity. Uh, One church in many homes, we're kind of scattered but we're together uh, in your name. Uh, we come together uh, united by our faith in Christ. And uh, as we gather around our screens and our devices this morning, we pray your spirit would just remind us of that and unite us. Uh, give us a sense of knowing that there are our brothers and sisters around the place who uh, love you and know you. Uh, we pray this morning for the rescue operations that are on uh, out there in the China Sea that are looking for survivors from that, that cattle ship that's gone down. Uh, we pray and I, essentially, I suppose, for miraculous uh, rescues, people being able to um, you know, survive in those seas, in life rafts and things, and uh, that people would be returned to their loved ones. Lord, we think of our own situation closer to home here uh, in Victoria. Uh, as we go through these lockdowns, as we go through these restrictions, we pray uh, that you would cultivate in our hearts uh, just an attitude of uh, praying for our leaders, uh, of being good neighbours to each other, of, of just looking to see the outcomes uh, that will bring uh, health to people. We, we know uh, while we are pursuing uh, this line of suppression and health towards a virus that around the edges that there are other symptoms of, of people isolated from families and human relationships that are cut off and we pray into that space too uh, the spirit would be working in there that people uh, would remain uh, strong in those spaces Lord now as we turn to your word here in Luke uh, we pray your spirit uh, would speak to us, enliven our hearts for truth, would interrupt our souls with your grace and with your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, if you follow sport of any kind, and um, whether it's AFL, whether it's basketball or soccer, I don't know why you'd follow soccer, but some people do, or maybe like there's an athletic discipline that you're really into, uh, sooner or later you're going to hear commentators talk about uh, a breakout game or a breakout performance by an individual uh, where, they, where they put it all together, where they just have a, a great day, where, where they live up to all the hype uh, and talk that's been surrounding their, their career, uh, all, all the prognosis is about it, and they, and they stamp their authority uh, on the game. They, they, they kind of just really show up and show the world uh, what they're capable of and what they're, what they're capable of doing, of bringing to the table, and how they're going to go about their, their, their sporting career, if you like, from here on in, bringing these qualities uh, to the table. In our passage today that Jeanette uh, read to us, Luke has recorded uh, a breakout day, if you like, a breakout day at the office for Jesus where he stamps his uh, authority on the game to do the very things that he has said that he has come to do. Uh, The very things that all the voices that have been surrounding Jesus, whether it's John the Baptist, whether it's an angel, whether it's songs from uh, Zachariah and Mary and Simeon and even God the Father himself turning up and all this around Jesus. Now on this day, Jesus stamps his authority on the game. And it's no accident that Luke has placed um, this, uh, which is the first of five Sabbath day healings. Like Jesus heals five times on the Sabbath in the, in the gospel of Luke. And he sticks this one right here 
after a Sabbath day event uh, where Jesus announced his game plan, where Jesus uh, said that he is going to be a a Messiah who brings salvation to the needy people, to broken people, to oppressed people, to imprisoned people, the sick and distressed, and that they would find in him, if you like, a new Sabbath, a kind of rest and peace uh, for the soul that redefines them, that turns their understanding of who they are upside down, completely uh, restores them. And we know that Jesus used the, the, the physical, these physical conditions of, of blindness and oppression and sight, uh, these conditions and environments uh, also as spiritual metaphors, that it wasn't just the physical attributes that he was coming to heal and restore, but how these things operated in our souls, uh, in our relationship with God. Well, Luke tells us here uh, in, in, um, in chapter 4 that Jesus heads down to Capernaum, uh, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they're astonished at his teaching for his words, they possessed authority. Well, after being rejected from his hometown in Nazareth, uh, Capernaum's going to become kind of a, a new hometown for Jesus, if you like, a base of operations. It's also uh, the hometown of his boys, uh, Peter, James, John, and Matthew, uh, where he collects these disciples from. It's a fish, fishing village that's situated up there on the, on the north top there corner of the Sea of Galilee, and it is actually situated some 680 feet below sea level, you know, roughly 1,400 feet below um, Jerusalem. And that. So you literally, no matter where you travel from, you travel down to um, Capernaum. So, so Luke, again, has got his geography right and describing things accurately. Capernaum... It's a city. It's got a lively trade economy, if you like. It's got fishing uh, industry there, and it's got agricultural industry that comes in. So lots of diverse people coming to this town from all walks of lives. They visit the city. They live at the city. They worship at the city. They come, and they do life at the city where Jesus begins to mingle and teach. And Luke tells us that when Jesus rolls into town, he keeps with his own practice, with his own longing of, of attending church to come and to worship, uh, to hear and read scripture, to be in the presence of his father uh, each and every Sabbath. By now, Jesus is a well-known preacher, though, uh, to the extent that his presence at the synagogue basically means he's a lock to be chosen to speak uh, there. And Luke tells us, uh, now that when Jesus was preaching on, and on the preaching roster, the people were disrupted from their religious slumbers. They were, they were confronted about the conditions of their hearts and, and all the forces of evil trembled at what they heard, just to quote a newsboy's song. Jesus preaching has a, a transformative authority about it. This is what sets him apart from preachers of the day. We read uh, about this um, in verses 14 and and 37 and later in verse 5, 15, that reports about Jesus, that the different nature of his preaching went out into every place and great crowds came and they gathered to hear him and to have their infirmities healed. You know, originality. Uh, of presentation, let alone uh, seeking change in a person's life, was not a highly prized attribute of your, your usual preacher back in the day. In fact, scribes and Pharisees were chained to long lists of references to rabbis, the handcuffed to quotations, if you like. Uh, if you wanted to excel, if you wanted to be taken seriously, 
in, in preaching, um, you know, it was more about who you could name drop uh, rather than how you applied the text into the lives of people. The more, you know, the more illustrious uh, rabbi that you quoted, the more impressive you felt about yourself. Alistair Begg remarks when he looks at this, he says, this made the preaching trivial. It made it legalistic. It made it joyless, weightless, and boring. So it's kind of like being served up, you know, yesterday's porridge, and then, and then you know, two day, three day, four days on, same porridge. Jesus, though, has no such chain. He had no such uh, constrictions on his preaching. Rather, Jesus kind of lets fly from his own thoughts. He, he spoke as one who had authority over the text rather than someone who sat under it. You know, Matthew's gospel, we, we read how, how Jesus says things like we find in his teaching, the language that he has. He says, you know, you have heard it said, uh, you know, you've heard said these things, but I am saying to you, I am telling you. Jesus' sermons were theologically accurate. They were immediately applicable and they were true in their content. You were not left wondering about how you could live your life in such a way that God would, would be approved, that, that, that God would accept you, a life that pleased God. And at the core of it, Jesus seemed to be saying that that began by listening to his words. Uh, in a way that transformed your life. Jesus preached as the word of God, not merely about the word of God. Jesus claimed uh, that ultimate truth, that ultimate newness of life, uh, what we would call the kingdom of God, was found in him. Luke tells us that people are astonished and amazed at his teaching. And this word means to strike with panic. It means to shock. It means to leave someone confronted. Like they weren't just scandalized uh, by the idea that Jesus just tacked his own authority onto what he said. Jesus' teaching was not merely informative. It was not like, you know, here's how to live your best life. Here's five easy steps about how to be a good dad or a good boss or an employer, how to be a good cat owner. He was not merely after behavior modification or morality or an incre increased sense of duty. When Jesus preached, he was after your soul. And his preaching disrupted your soul. It had an authoritative quality that pushed past the slumbering and bored minds that exposed uh, the underlying uh, prejudices and self-sufficiencies uh, of people. That's why they ran him out of Nazareth. He, he confronted their middle-class entitled kind of Christianity. Jesus turned up turned the heart upside down and he said salvation does not lie in your goodness it doesn't lie in your ability to to quote all these people or or, or to know the, the 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 word backwards but it relies in my goodness and how you hear my words i have come to bring uh, that goodness into your lives but not as an addition not as a new set of rules not as a list of principles to live by but as a replacement uh, for what your heart is captivated by what it currently finds most desirable i am replacing everything uh, about life that you know let me tell you something if you have not had your heart disrupted like this if you have not had your heart disrupted by Jesus, if it has not been shocked, if it has not been panicked by the things and the claims that Jesus makes and what he has to say, you have not met Jesus. 
you have not met him at all. Your heart has not been transformed by the authority of his word and you are still living off porridge. Jesus stamps his authority to be the teacher and transformer of your very soul, to be the one who brings the blessings of the kingdom of God in your life through a shocking and confronting offer of grace. Not your works, but his freely given, whereby it's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with what Jesus is bringing to the table. Well, as everyone's sitting there in stunned silence and, 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 and quiet contemplation, maybe their hearts shocked and traumatized, and the old, this is like the altar call moment of a service, yeah? Uh, if we were here, they'd be playing that Anne Murray hymn, you know, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. I don't really like the hymn, but whatever. The people used to use it for uh, altar callings. Luke tells us that just at that moment, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Now, just like a, a side note, the description of unclean for a demon is, is, is redundant. You don't need it. But Luke is describing the effect on the person, unclean. And, and, Luke, and in Luke's gospel, Jesus makes unclean things, un, people who have been uh, made unclean, contaminated by whatever it is in this world, Jesus makes them clean again. Jesus has the authority to reverse the condition of uncleanness that separates you from God, that keeps you apart. You know, that's the great fear, you know, that contact with the unclean, contact with the evil of evil and these things kind of rubs off and contaminates us, but not on Jesus. It doesn't rub off on him. It doesn't contaminate it. Rather, he wipes it out. Rather, he removes it. He rubs it out. Well, this, this man, he cries out with a loud voice, ha, which is, a, which is kind of like an ex- exasperation, like leave us alone. Like, what are you doing here? We've got nothing in common with you. Why are you disrupting our good situation we've got here? Like, this dude's been coming to church for 20 years, um, and none of these fools know how jacked up and messed up he is. Why are you coming into this and messing up this good thing we've got going on? We have nothing... What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebukes him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. Now, I know that in 2020, the biblical idea of demons has been trivialized and all you really need is either Tom Hanks or Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you've got the whole situation covered. Or that the reality of supernatural has been, been killed off, uh, if you like, by the so-called powers of science and the, and, and the enlightenment of human thinking. We're far too sophisticated you know, to be influenced by primitive ideas of spiritual realities of good and evil. We know that matter and material things are all there is in the world. And yet at the same time, there is some irrepressible, undeniable, a spiritual element to life that makes this materialistic philosophy and thinking from the likes of it. It's existed from, you know, the 580 BC, Thaleus of Miletus. Um, he, he was thinking these things all the way through to Richard Dawkins. He's not the best of the thinkers, but he's just well known. And none of these people have been able to kill off this idea. 
And that's why movies like Star Wars continue to smash box office records. It's why the psychic industry, you know, um, astrology and stars uh, uh, has, has just gone crazy uh, with people trying to get in touch with and control supernatural forces. It's grown by over 52% since 2005 to now. And in America uh, alone, annually, they spend $2.2 billion a year uh, trying to get in touch with, trying to encounter, trying to control, trying to, trying to work out what's going on out there in the spiritual world. Here in Australia, we like to think we're not as hysterical as our American friends, and it was actually harder to find data on it. But a, an Australian university had noticed that there'd been a 25% increase in business uh, for people seeking uh, spiritual insight since COVID-19 turned up. Rather than moving away from the idea that there is a spiritual component to existence and life, we are with increasing measure trying to understand it, trying to master it, trying trying to gain control over something that's outside of ourselves. Perhaps the reason why we have sought to deny the reality of demons and the presence of evil forces is because we know that we don't have any control in this space. And that would mean that whoever controls this space, whoever has authority over all of this space, would be like a god, would be a god-like entity that our lives should be lived in consideration of. I'm not a spiritual warfare expert. I never will be. It's not my lane. I'm kind of more like Jesus that when, when, when these things kind of turn up in conversations, I'm like, you know what, just shut up, be quiet, let's not give it any press. But what Luke is telling us here is that Jesus has an unchallenged and universal authority over the spiritual world. And that the aspect of the spiritual world that is at war with human flourishing, that is at war with the glory of God, that is, is nothing but a lapdog in the presence of Jesus. You know, you won't find one single place in the Bible where a demon kind of flexes up and talks over the top of Jesus. They are exposed in his presence. And their authority and control uh, and power to blind people to truth, to enslave them to oppression, to enslave them in addiction and contr- and, and self whatever these things are, self-sufficiency, to to. to to lead them to be worshipping all kinds of things other than God is instantly dismantled by the authority of Jesus' words. There's no dualistic uh, cosmic battle here. Like, oh, I wonder if this particular Jesus, this particular demon, sorry, will give Jesus a run for his money. He's not tying anyone down on beds. He's not working up a sweat. No, Jesus just simply says, hey, shut up and know your place. Get in those pigs. Or, or shut up and leave this dude alone. The word is actually be muzzled. Uh, leave this dude alone. And they must. They've got no choice. Demons are dispatched and the man is delivered. And he is delivered unharmed. And he is restored. And he is made clean. When Jesus rescues and restores people from spiritual oppression. It's not an elaborate ritual in which a person is put through further trauma, further harm. He just simply reads out an eviction notice and says, the soul is under new management, you're done, and out of here, and he begins the restoration process of healing in a person. 
Jesus is doing exactly what he said and claimed he had come to do. And the people who serve this were like, what is this word? His words, he commands, his teachings have authority to set people, to set um, spiritual captives free. His words set people into spiritual liberty. Jesus brings peace to the soul that's worried about whether it can be harmed by supernatural spiritual forces. I mean, that's Paul's whole argument, isn't it, in Romans 8, you know? If God is for us in Jesus, then what in heaven and earth can destroy our soul? What can, what, what can cut me off from the love and the goodness of God? Nothing. Nothing if, if Jesus is engaged. Jesus has the authority to redeem and restore and to make clean and make acceptable, to protect even those who have been enslaved by demonic powers. Now hear me, because we've been, we've been more informed by the likes of William Blatty than we have by the Bible in this area, I think, sometimes. You don't know who William Blatty is. That's probably a good thing. But look at it. I can't believe people didn't know who Harry Stamper was last week. I mean, honestly, William Blatty. We're more informed by his thinkings and his books than we are by the Bible. William, Who's William Blatty? The exorcist. All right. Demons are not a generic cause of people's sinful behavior. Your porn addiction your anger issues, your pride, your elevation of good things to God are not the work of some demon, you know. That's you. That's your heart. That's our sinful nature at play. And the authority of Jesus' teachings can disrupt that, can change that, can, can, can transform that. But demon possession represents the fiercest, foulest, and fullest opposition toward God and the corruption of the human soul and, and its design of people to bear the image of God and the character of God. They represent the physical uh, operational agency of the power and oppression of the evil one in the world. That's what John writes about in 1 John 5.18. And the ministry of Jesus and in his ministry, the, demo- the demonic something that barely gets a mention Anywhere else throughout the rest of the Bible. But when Jesus is there, when the gospel is coming to life, the spotlight is shone on it to show how Jesus has come to destroy uh, the works of the devil. That's what John writes in 1 John 3, 8. The forces of evil I might be able to take control of or dominate a person. But when confronted with Jesus, they, they are simply and effortlessly overpowered. That's the lesson here. There is nothing out there that you need to fear. There's nothing out there that you need to go and pay some whack job medium uh, tarot card reading freak to try and get control of or understand when your life is anchored to and transformed by Jesus. He has authority over all of these things that are rolling around. And listen, there's no transforming on offer here. There's no redeeming on offer here for the demonic world. No good news of salvation for them. Only confirmation of their condemnation and their place in hell. And that's why the demon says here, you know, why have you come to destroy us, O Holy One of God? Jesus represents the end of their power and their claim on humanity. Whatever authority they have exercised in this world, it ends in Jesus. 
And as we read here, nor is Jesus interested in what the demonic world has to say about him. We might find it strange that Jesus continuously silences the testimony of demons about his true identity. But Jesus knows perfectly well that as accurate as the testimony of the demonic world might be, it is unaccompanied by faith or hope or love of God. They never speak out of loyalty to the truth or with any intention of leading people toward that truth. They are dedicated to hampering and hindering um, the hindering of that. And maybe if they can, by, by, by making these outrageous claims about Jesus, get control of the narrative around him and his actual message will get lost in their message. Perhaps if they can get people to buy into the idea of a Messiah, a transformer of political, social, religious environments, then, then he will leave alone the spiritual oppression and bondage of the soul, the, the true need that, that people are enslaved to. What matters is not simply knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, but seeing him as the one who has the authority to bring a Sabbath to your soul and that that soul being transformed and led into worship and joy and delight in the goodness of God. At the end of the day, Jesus isn't wanting or looking for the obligated and begrudged confessions of deposed demons. He is seeking to bring the liberating life of the kingdom of God to bear on the hearts of people so that they might be delivered out of a kingdom of death and into a kingdom of life, that they might be made clean, that they might become new creatures, delivered from the power of sin and even evil forces. That's what uh, Jesus is stamping his authority over here as, as in this passage. Well, the day is still young. They haven't even got out of church yet. And Jesus has stamped his authority over all the dimensions of life that we desperately want answers to, uh, that, we, that we feel that are out of our control. The, the, these things that we're spending billions of dollars on or trying to trivialize or tame through movies. In Jesus, we find someone who dials in his unmatched, uh, his unchallenged and effortless authority over the spiritual world to bring us into peace, to heal us without harming us, to bring us out of enslavement of, of uh, an evil kingdom and into one that is a life-giving one. You know, next week we're going we're gonna to see how Jesus stamps his authority over the physical world uh, as he does something even more scandalous than anything he's ever done in this passage. Next week we see Jesus heal someone's mother-in-law like is there no end to what this man won't do. But this morning we have seen uh, how Jesus just stamps his authority over, over the things that you genuinely usually are outside of the control of science and, and, and reason in these things. There's nothing in this universe that does not come under his sovereign control. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this morning, this passage that we've kind of got halfway through and how we see uh, the authority of Jesus uh, over all authorities, over all things in the world. And we pray this morning uh, that we have encountered this uh, life changing, life-transforming Jesus, that we have met the authority of his word, that it has come and it has interrupted our souls, that it has rescued us from, from our own sin. And Lord, we know uh, that there are bigger, greater levels of oppression and that out in the world and things that we don't really 
have our own mastery over, but we know that while we may not fully understand uh, the demonic world, we know that Jesus has authority and power over it, and it's not something that we should live in fear of. It's not something we should live in oppression of. And we give you thanks uh, for these wonderful truths this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.